It's fun to be a part of a church uh, full of life, and man, God has blessed us tremendously. And I, I, I want to remind you, when you invest in the next generation, you really do impact the future. All right, if you have your Bible and you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, if you don't have it, you can follow along your message notes on the screen. That's where we'll be beginning. So today is Palm Sunday. It's the week before Jesus goes to the cross. He's put into a tomb. He's resurrected. And it's a really interesting event in the life of Jesus. It's one of those moments that when you first read it, you may not get all of the, the meat out of the story. When you first look at the story of Palm Sunday, what you see is you see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the capital city, where all the action happened, and he's riding on a donkey. Now, that's not a picture that we look at and go, that's incredible majesty. Uh, that's a beautiful picture. A white stallion would be better if you remember the movies Lord of the Rings. On the third one, Gandalf comes over the mountain on a white stallion with the light behind him. That's the picture of royalty. That's the picture of power. But what we don't understand is about 200 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, somebody else did that. Uh, those of you that are Catholic, you've heard this name. Those of you that are Protestant, maybe you haven't. But a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey about 200 years just before Jesus did. And that riding in Jerusalem on a donkey ushered in a time when the Maccabees would take control of Jerusalem. These Jewish people would take control of their own city away from the Syrian Empire. And for about 100 years, they ruled themselves after having been oppressed for a long time. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it harkened back to a time in everybody's known history. Everybody in the room, everybody in the, in the audience, everybody in the crowd would have known about Judas Maccabeus and him riding in and the ushering in of political freedom and self-rule, that governmental reality that they had all hoped for as they were currently living under the oppressive regime of Rome. So when Jesus rides in on a donkey, even though it's not a white stallion, it, it's, a, it's a mark of power, it's a mark of authority, it's a mark of great things to come. And that's what they were hoping for. So when he comes in, they begin to sing a song from their, one of their favorite psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm 118 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. And in Psalm 118, we get the line, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's all about a time, that chapter in Psalms 118, it's all about a time when things are rough, but God sends a deliverer, a son of David, a, a king to sit on a throne, the throne of David, the ultimate king from their history. He's going to sit on that throne, and when he sits on it, the kingdom will know no end. And the high point of that chapter in the book of Psalms is the one that they quoted and sang out loud as Jesus rode on a donkey on his way into Jerusalem for his final week. And they're eager, they're ready, they're hopeful that this life that they believed he would bring would be coming. So just the free-willed offering of their heart was, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's a great day. And they grab palm tree branches, that's what we call it, Palm Sunday, and they wave them in the air. They throw them on the path in front of that donkey as Jesus rides in. Now, now, now the reason, one of the reasons they were so excited is because just before this event, just before this event, Jesus had been at Lazarus' house and had raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and scarcely before the bandages were even off of Lazarus, news has gone throughout the entire region that Jesus is powerful enough 
to raise somebody from the dead. And so right on the heels of that, he's riding in, and expectations are high, and they're excited. They're thrilled about this. And some people were remembering even that in Zephaniah, an Old Testament prophet, in chapter 9, verse 9, there's a, there's a verse that says that the one who would usher in the kingdom would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So as he's riding through, I bet you some people are kind of whispering, is, is this it? Is this the one? Is it happening now? And he... In fact, when Matthew describes the event, he says that, that the whole situation was tumultuous. The, the root of that word, we get our word seismic from it. That there was like a seismic shift. The ground kind of shook with excitement as he rode through. And expectations are high. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know what happens in the final week. If not, let me clue you in. So he rides in in this processional of honor and dignity and so much expectation. But it's going to be a week later that the same ones that are cheering him are going to jeer him. And the same crowd that's saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're going to be yelling a different phrase. They're going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. It's going to shift. That shift happens for a lot of reasons, but let me just simplify it, overly simplify it for conversation today. It's going to happen in part because what they wanted him to do, he made it clear that was not what he was going to do. No matter how you want to slice it. They had an expectation. They knew exactly in their minds what was going to happen. And it's almost as if Jesus is going out of his way to say, all that stuff you want me to do, I'm not doing any of that. I'm not going to raise up an insurrection against Rome. I'm not like Judas Maccabeus going to be bringing in our own political in this world kind of kingdom. That's not going to happen. I'm not starting the revolution. That's what they had hoped for. Finally some freedom. Finally returning back to this self-determination. If there was ever a group of people in the world that can understand the need for self-determination, how sweet that would be, it would be modern-day Americans. I mean, we love our freedom, and that's really what was at the heart of their hope, that Jesus would usher in this freedom against Rome. But systematically, he goes out of his way to show, point by point, when you read, when you read the sections of the New Testament, the Gospels, on the final week of Jesus' life, it's clear he's going out of his way to show them, I'm not about that. I'm about a kingdom, but my kingdom is marked radically different. And I'm not going to come in power and pomp and circumstance. I'm coming in a very different format. My kingdom will be ushered in a different way. And some of the hopes you have aren't wrong, but they're misguided. They're slightly misaligned, and some are wholesale missed. You're hoping for a kingdom that won't end? Well, I'm going to give you that, but the rules of this kingdom are not going to be marked and identified by the ways you typically understand kingdom. And in a series of incredible events, and it's so incredible that, for instance, the, the gospel of Mark that tells the story of Jesus' life, half of the gospel of Mark, eight of the 16 chapters, deal with the last week of Jesus' life. One-third of the book of Matthew deals with the last week of Jesus' life. One-fourth of the Gospel of John, the last week of Jesus' life. One-third of the book of Luke, the last one week of his life. So many cool, amazing, stupefying, miraculous things happen. Now what the crowd didn't know, 
Jesus knew. And this is what I want to talk with you about today. While the crowd didn't understand his purpose and had misguided expectations, while their hopes were in the wrong place, all along, Jesus knew. He knew as he's riding on the donkey and they're screaming Hosanna, he knew that it wasn't going to be long until that crowd would turn on him. He knew it in advance. That's why he goes out of his way in the last week. You can read the stories if you want to kind of prove, nope, no, you think this, but here's what it is really. You think this, but here's what it is really. Oh, you're going to try to force my hand and bring the revolution quickly? Watch me back out of that trial and that situation very dramatically. So he knew it. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us in chapter 13. It's not particularly a Palm Sunday message, but it gets to the heart and to the why of what's going on. Why would Jesus do what he did? I mean, why go to the cross? Now, again, if you've been in church, you've heard it. If you've been around any length of time, you know this is the central message of Christianity, the cross and the resurrection. So we talk about it a lot, and you may have even learned some of the sloganeering we've done around this. But Jesus goes to the cross, ultimately, for me and you. What hangs him to the cross is not the nails. It's his love for us. He sets out on a mission, and even though the crowd wanted to take him in a different place to a different ending, he is resolute in his purpose. He's unbending in his mission, and he goes, man. He goes. But why? What gave him the motivation to be able to, with eyes wide open, where the crowd was blind, he has eyes wide open. What gave him the motivation to be able to press all the way through? How was he able to do that? Have you, have you ever had a situation where you knew it was going to be uphill? You knew it was going to be hard. You wanted it. You wanted to do the thing. But between here and there, between here and its accomplishment, it was just going to be difficult. You were going to pay a high price. Every parent, before they're a parent, maybe while mom's pregnant, has thought, I'm so excited, and I'm scared to death, you know? If you've had one kid, but you get pregnant again, for instance, I've seen this happen a lot. I've seen it happen not as dads got pregnant, but as they watched, you know, their spouse get pregnant, and they, uh, they kind of think through, all right, we got one, and we were a bit naive with that first one, but now the blinders are off, man. We see clearly. What, what, what makes a person have a second kid? Are they masochistic? Is that, is that what it is? Because you have all the information you need to know this is going to be a challenge. Jill and I had three kids in about three and a half years. We're generally smart people. But is this what makes a person go, I know it's going to be hard, but I want to do it anyway. Now, this is what I'm... So what I've been focusing on for the last couple of weeks is I think about getting my heart ready for Easter and all that God might want to do in me. So then, in my, in my working through this stuff, I, I come across in my normal reading in Hebrews 13. And there's some language here that I think sheds some light on how it is Jesus with eyes wide open could go so resolutely towards what he always wanted 
but hadn't had to pay the price to the same degree that he was about to. He's walking into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they're screaming Hosanna. But in one real sense, he's going to exit out the back end of Jerusalem into a little subsection right outside the city where he's literally going to give his life. And it's going to be completely different. So at some point after Jesus' death and resurrection, the writer of Hebrews begins to tell the story to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people, to describe how amazing Jesus is, how he's better than anything they've ever known. You think Moses is great? Look at Jesus. You think the angels are great? Look at Jesus. You think the law is great? Look at Jesus. And so in Hebrews 13, he's keeping that same theme up. And here's what he says. Verse number 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, Previous to verse 12, he's been describing some stuff that was common knowledge to Jewish folk of the day. The, the ritual of the priest in the temple slaughtering an animal to cover the, the sin of the people. The blood would run down. So you would shed blood, sin would be forgiven. They knew that culture. They knew that imagery. So the writer of Hebrews just kind of hints to their shared history. But then he's going to bring some experience, some knowledge, some theology into that common understanding. So just like the priest would kill the lamb, Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to do it outside of the city gate. And he's going to do it so that people can be made holy through his blood. But here's where it gets interesting to me. A disciple trying to figure out what's the implication. Is the cross something I should just marvel at? Should I just be surprised and overwhelmed by the awesome sacrifice that Jesus paid? Or as a disciple, how might that sacrifice, how might that investment he made impact me today? This is what I'm wrestling with with you today. So here's what the verse says, verse 13 of chapter 13. Let us then. So Jesus went out outside the city to rescue, to redeem. So let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here, we do not have an endearing city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good, and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So with the cross, we're amazed at the high cost Christ paid. And when we get to beyond the cross to the resurrection, we begin to understand that the cost was really an investment in us. Depending on your perspective, it's either a sacrifice or it's an investment. When Jill and I were wrestling with just basic money management, and every time we'd set our goal towards something we wanted to do, and we'd think about what we were going to have to get up, give up to get there, we would think about the sacrifice, the sacrifice. And man, it was. We had to be more diligent. We had to plan ahead. We couldn't fulfill every whim. If we wanted to go out to eat, we had to ask if we had money left in that account. We had to make, invest, we had to make choices that were sacrificial. But it wasn't long. After we did some of that sacrifice, we began to understand it wasn't a sacrifice in the simple sense where it just costs you. It was actually an investment. Same behavior, but viewed differently. Not just a sacrifice, but an investment. 
And when I view it as an investment, it's not that it's necessarily easier, but it has purpose. I'm more internally motivated because I'm investing in what I want to happen. I'm not just giving up something that I want. You see the difference? That, I think that's kind of what's going on in the heart of Jesus. He's making an investment in something that's very valuable, some future goal he hopes to hit, some future thing that isn't yet, but it's going to be that's very much worth whatever price he's got to pay right now. This matches some of the parables he told. Here's one. He says, if you were to be walking in a field and discover a pearl, like buried in the field, like you know, maybe you're walking on, you kick something, it's like, oh, what's that? And you, it's a, a massive pearl. He said, you, you'd go sell everything you have, and you would buy that field, and then you'd go get that treasure. And the selling of everything you had, you wouldn't count that as a sacrifice. No, no, no. You'd count that as a as an investment. You see the difference? Sacrifice, investment. Now, I'm talking to a lot of disciples today. Maybe a few people aren't yet disciples. But Jesus, when he gave his life on the cross and was resurrected from the tomb, he made an investment in you and I. An investment so that we could have an unrestricted relationship with our Heavenly Father. It was an investment so sweet that he was willing to pay the ultimate price. When I, when I stop and think about that, it blows me away. So at one point, the Apostle Paul's writing about it. And in Philippians, he, he begins to describe it from heaven's perspective. That the imagery, it goes something like this. That one day Jesus is kind of sitting on the throne of heaven. We don't know what that looks like, but it's a regal place. It's a place of power. It's a place of honor. It's a place of dignity and authority. And he's sitting on the throne of heaven. But he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are going to enact the plan. So Paul says that at that moment, Jesus did not think so highly of himself that he was unwilling to shrug off the royal robes and put flesh on and become a man. That's the perspective of heaven. And then he came to this earth and he lived a sinless life and he taught powerfully and he did miracles to show us the authority of God. And he ultimately went with intention. Nobody took his life, the Bible says, but he gladly laid it down. And so here we are. That investment has paid off. That great sacrifice, that great investment made a difference. We've been asking what would it mean if before Easter we went all in. I want to give you three simple, I hope profound, I hope meaningful, and I hope life-changing sacrifices or investments that disciples today can make. And they come right from our passage. And I'm going to take them out of order. Um, don't mean to do dishonor to the word of God here. I'm going to take them out of order because I can start with the more obvious one and we'll, we'll en end up with the one that may not be quite as intuitive. All right? So the first one, the first sacrifice in light of the cross, in light of the investment that Jesus made, the first investment I think that disciples could begin to think about is the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. We read it earlier, but here's the verse. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. 
the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So, so let me give you a couple statements here. I don't know what you think a disciple is. We've been kind of wrestling with this word a little bit over the last few weeks. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is disciplined. A disciple follows. There's a lot that a disciple is. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, pick up, uh, pick up your cross, lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow me. So, so to some degree, a disciple is a sacrificer. A disciple is an investor. And the writer of Hebrews says that one of the things that we can do in light of what Jesus did, he went out of the side of the city, he suffered shame. One of the things we can do is we can offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. So to be a disciple, I think, is to cultivate a heart to stand in awe of God. Can I, can I tell you what I want for you? There's, there's a lot of things I hope for you. But when I pray for this church, when I pray for you, I'm going to tell you, I, I've cut through the fluff over the last few years. Can I just tell you what will make you the greatest disciple you've ever been? Very simple. It's not a program we offer. The programs we offer have the goal of getting you to the thing I'm going to describe. It's not an experience I can bring you. Whatever experience we hope to bring you is really designed to get you to the thing I'm talking about right now. It's not a relationship that we can have. It's not a discipleship process where we have breakfast every morning and I walk you through... If, even if we were to do that, the hope would be that the thing I'm going to talk about right now happens in you. That as a disciple, you would cultivate a heart for God. That your heart would be in awe of God's greatness. Greatness to you, greatness in general, his, his authority, his power, his reign, his wisdom. To be a disciple is to cultivate a heart to stand in awe of God. The, the truth of the matter is, is most of us have too small an image of God. We are in some ways like that crowd yelling Hosanna. We know what we want from him. We hope he'll bring it. We actually believe he has authority to do it. And so we're so excited for what he can do for us. And that's not all wrong. It's incomplete. The, the crowds were not all wrong. They didn't have a fully developed understanding of what God was doing. They were so captivated by their own situation, they couldn't see the bigger picture. So one of the best things I can do for you, no matter what picture you find yourself in, is to help you understand that a heart cultivated to be in awe of God's grandeur, of his amazingness, of his awesomeness, that heart is the thing that can carry you no matter how the picture shifts. No matter if he meets the needs that you're asking him to meet today or he does something radically different than you were expecting. No matter if he does it on time or he does it too late, according to you and me. So to be a disciple is to cultivate a heart that stands in awe. And let me make it clear, a heart of praise, you know what the Bible says it does? A heart of praise bears fruit on the lips. It's a very simple process. The, the process. the fruit grows when the sap is flowing. So when the heart is churning for God, has this awe place, the place that God sits, this, this place of, of amazement in you. And the Bible says that that's what's happening in your heart with God. Can we tell you what's going to happen in your life? One of the proofs is going to be out of your lips is going to come praise to God. It's a very fascinating concept that the writer here deals with. 
He doesn't say, although it's not wrong, it's just incomplete. He doesn't say that your mind is just going to think about how amazing God is. It, it probably will if the heart is cultivated towards God. He doesn't say that you're just going to do some nice stuff for people, although you probably will. We're going to talk about that actually in a minute. But that's not what he says. He says that if the heart is really softened for the things of God, something's going to happen. It's going to produce fruit, not the lips. Now, one of the things I think that disciples can do as we try to press all in at Easter is to understand this dynamic between the heart and the lips. Let me tell you how Jesus said it. He went at it more directly. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, do you know what happens? The mouth speaks. So here's the thing. I don't know all that's going on in your heart. I don't. But I know if over time I've heard you talk a lot, I get a hint of some of what's going on in your heart. I do. It's just true. It's true in a marriage, isn't it? Like we all know how silly it is. To have the perspective of the old man who'd been married for 50 years, and at the 50th anniversary, the wife looks at him and says, Honey, it's been 50 years. It was on our wedding day since you told me you love me. Just once would you say it. And he looked at her and said, Bessie. I don't know why it's Bessie, but it's Bessie. Sounds like an old name. If your name's Bessie, I'm sorry. <laughs> Bessie, I told you I loved you when we got married, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. Now, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It doesn't work. No. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. One of the things I think we can do to live in light of the sacrifice that was made for us, it doesn't earn anything with God, but we can cultivate this heart for God, and we can, and here, here's the word, we can make an investment with our lips to not just think about it, not just be moved, not just be stirred, not just feel it, not just contemplate it, but to make an investment in our with our lips to begin to speak some of the great things of God. I, 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 I'm pretty impressed with what a heart that is in wonder of God, I'm pretty impressed with what that does in a person's life. Let, let me just be candid with you for just a moment if I can. Can I tell you when it is I know that I need to spend more diligent and better time in my chair when I'm doing chair time with the Lord? It's when my heart hardens up a little bit. When I'm a little, I don't know, raw sometimes, full, overwhelmed, frustrated. Because that stuff has a way of kind of crowding out. It's like, it's like the heart real estate is precious. It's limited. And what you let in tends to find its way out. So for me, when my heart gets, I've got to spend a little bit more time, because here, here's what I know. I think I may have put it for you in your notes. That weariness happens in the life of a disciple when they work for God, but they don't have the wonder of God. Weariness can happen in a believer's life when they work for God, but they don't have wonder of God. The awe that is to happen. So, so one of the ways we do that is we just watch what's naturally coming out of our lips. But the writer here says we actually make a sacrifice of praise with our lips. We, we push our lips to talk about the God that we are in wonder of. The God who is awe-inspiring. So it's not just thoughts, not just the heart, but the lips are sacrificially used to worship. What that means is on occasion, when you'd rather say this, you make an investment in this. On occasion, when you'd rather express this, 
you sacrifice or invest in this. The sacrifice of your lips that bring praise to God. So if your heart is not amazed by the grace of God, this is hard to do. If your mind isn't gripped by the truth of God, this is hard to do. And if your sense of right and wrong isn't permeated by the justice of God, this is hard to do. And if your faith is really the work you're doing versus resting in the power of God, this is hard to do. But once you understand how awe-inspiring God is, it's easier to be in the place of saying, I can use my mouth this way or I can use my mouth this way. It's easier to push yourself to speak the things of God. Number two, the sacrifice of sharing what you have. Hebrews 13, 15. Look at what the Bible says. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So Jesus has done all of this, so what do disciples do? We sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, and we share what we have with others. So there's joy, deep joy, not just, gosh, I'd rather have all my stuff for me, but there's deep joy in seeing the investment and the long-term impact of sharing what God has blessed you with with others. And sometimes, yeah, it's a sacrifice. Sometimes it's not the most fun-filled thing to do until you grow up a bit and you realize that most of the great things in life require a certain amount of saying no to me and no to now so I can say yes to others and yes to later. That's part of the power of growing as a disciple. So what happens is, is when you do this, you begin to discover, I believe, that there's deep joy that comes because you begin to prove the success of Christ's sacrifice. Hey, you, know, you know what Jesus said? You know how people would know that you're his disciple, that you would have love one for another. And that love would be marked by words and actions and kindness. And one of the things the early church did so well is they gave, they shared with others such as they had need. So I was so stoked to come in last week and See, you know, 209 bags it was by Sunday, several more this week, and a handful more this uh, week, even Sunday coming in, because you're living out what I'm talking about here. And for some of you, it was a big deal to pull aside a bag of groceries and bring it. For others, it wasn't that big of a deal, but you brought some of what you had to others. And there's deep joy that comes to me when I act this way, because I remember that God can use an imperfect person like me to do something pretty profound. You know, why, you know why sharing with others is so powerful? Because it reminds me that God can use me. I'm broken, friends. I got challenges. I struggle. But even with all that, God can use me to do something pretty awesome. And he'll do that for you too. And there are people who you have a relationship with, they have no idea the awesomeness of our God. They think they're so broken that God could never use them when in fact he takes deep joy. And using very broken people to do some pretty awesome stuff. A kind word. When you yourself need a kind word. The giving of a gift. When you yourself would love to receive a gift. You can take deep joy in knowing that God is molding you into, your, into his handiwork. He's making you that masterpiece as you sacrifice and share with others what you have. Or, or you, you, know, you invest if you want to see it that way. Number three. The sacrifice of going outside the camp. Did you read what the, the Bible said with me? Did it, did it strike you? Hebrews 13, verse 12. 
And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And look at verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp. What would it cost us to do that? Bearing the disgrace he bore. Why would we do that? Because that city that we're leaving, that's not our enduring city. We're actually looking for a city that is to come. Now It's Easter next week, and a lot of people are going to come to church who only come a couple times a year, and we want this to be the church they come to twice a year if that's all they're going to come to. But when I read about Jesus going outside the camp, and then the writer of Hebrews says, let us go to him. You know why Jesus went outside the camp? Because he wanted more of his family that wasn't in his family to be in his family. It's one of the reasons why we have to sacrifice, give up, push ourselves to go outside the camp. It can be a little uncomfortable. The writer says we bear a little disgrace as well as his messengers. But we go to where he is because he went there for people. So we have to go outside the camp. I mean, that's a perfect metaphor for the Christian enclave that can happen. We're in the camp. We're comfortable. We have relationships. We know everybody. It's good. But we're called to go outside the camp where it's a little uncomfortable. Maybe we're not wired that way. Maybe it's hard for us. But we go outside the camp where the lost, the hurting, and the broken, and the disconnected are. And so with prayer and with clarity of words, we go to them and we try to help them see with words and action just how great God is, the one who invites them back into relationship with him, back all the way into his family. Three big sacrifices I think we can make to go all in. Sacrifice of praise with our lips. So let me just be a pastor for 30 seconds here. You know, the music is good, men. Let me talk to the men, right? Let's spend the ladies on in the room for just a second. Music's good. Tap our feet, it's fine. Do you know that, that the praise leaders in the Old Testament, they were all men? Like all the ones that are named, at least. I'm certain women worshiped as well. But worship is the purview of men in the church and women. I'm just gonna, women, you're not here for right now, right? I'll let you over here for a second. So, so, so men, it, it seems like somehow it, it feels a more emotional or whatever, but in the Bible, the biggest heroes of the Bible, the biggest people who faith moved on them and they moved in faith, they were worshipers. They loved to get together in the group and use their lips, not just their mind, not just their feelings, not just their agreement. They use their lips to sing praises to God. It's a big deal. So here's what I'm going to ask for you to do. Next Sunday on Easter, the greatest day in the history of humanity, the day that if you don't go to church, you don't get to go to heaven. So that's what's happening. I'm slightly exaggerated, all right? But on that day, when you come in here, I'm going to ask you, can I tell you what would be the most attractive thing to our guests? It won't be our hospitality, although we do a pretty good job. It won't be our amazing kid space, although with your investment and the heart and the team, it's a pretty amazing space. It'll be if the presence of God shows up and inhabits the praise of his people. Even if you don't know Jesus, even if you've never been in church, you can feel that. Yeah, I know. I'm a little Pentecostal on this. I got it. It's all right. But when the spirit of God is flowing, I've had hardened atheists. People have been bruised and battered by church in the past. When the presence of God is flowing, they walk out going, I don't know about all that stuff, but woo, something happened. You know what I want next Sunday morning thing? I want your guests here. 
I do. I want you to go out into the city, go out of the camp, go out of the city. I want you to invite your guests. But I want God's presence here. So years ago, we stopped trying to put on the best show, and we just said, God, would you come and inhabit the praise of your people? And would you draw all people to yourself? Would you just do that? And we'll preach the Bible. We'll remind people that the love of God is good, hell's hot to be avoided, and heaven's awesome. It's where you want to go. And we'll love you the best we can. But what we want more than anything else is we want God's presence. And you can help do that because God inhabits the praise of his people, the fruit of your lips. I want to ask you to share with others what God has blessed you with. Maybe you'll do that in our Easter offering. You would just write Easter on your check, on your uh, online. You could put Easter. All that's available for you, just Easter. And we're going to invest. I'll tell you more about that. Not next week. We have too many guests, but the week after what we're doing, a very small thing we're doing um, with big impact in terms of the total number. But so I'll share with you all that. But you already know where the bulk of it's going to go. It's going to go to our student ministries. Maybe you share that way. Maybe you just take somebody to lunch. Maybe you tell somebody, come to church with me, and I'll buy your lunch for you. I mean, most people would come to church if you actually took them out to okay restaurant and bought them lunch. Most people would come if you took them to McDonald's, if you just asked them to come with you. So invest. And then finally, number three, I'm asking you next week, uh, over this week, to go outside the camp where it's comfortable and easy and, and you know people. And it would be very easy to talk with people here about God. You get in your small group, you talk about it. You come to church, you stand in the lobby. But imagine if you just said to somebody that you know, like I'm not talking strangers, you know them, and you say, hey, if you don't have a church to go on Easter, why don't you come with me? Like, I think you'll enjoy the music. I think you'll be able to understand the message. And these people are pretty kind. I mean, what if it was not more complicated than that? And then if they said no, you know what you do? You'd say, hey, man, no problem. No, no problem at all. It's, it's all good. But what if you made a sacrifice of your lips, an investment of your lips? What, what, what if you made an investment of the stuff God's blessed you with? And what if you made an investment, a sacrifice, by going outside the camp to compel people to come into the family of God. I think you can make all the difference. Go ahead and grab out your Connect card, and we'll turn some of this into actual action steps here. But as you're doing that, I want to share with you a little story that caught my attention this week. A few years ago, there was a young man by the name of Garrett Griffin. Garrett Griffin. And uh, he was in Florida, not far from where Jill and I used to live. We were in Plant City. He was in Lakeland, and he had signed up to go skydiving before he went back home. They were in Florida on vacation. And so he went up with an experienced instructor, a guy by the name of Michael Costello, takes him up in the plane. They, they strap together, you know, they do this kind of in tandem jump. They jump out of the plane, exhilarating few seconds, and something went wrong. Something crazy. They pull the string, chute doesn't open. No big deal, they're in tandem. No big deal. So they pull the auxiliary string because there's always an auxiliary. Nothing happened. True story. So now they're tumbling. They lose control. They're tumbling over and over, hurtling towards the earth. As they're approaching the ground, the, the young man's on bottom and the instructor is on top. Michael's on top and Griffin's on the bottom. And just before they hit, people who were watching said, here's what happened. Somehow, the instructor gained control and uh, turned so that he was on the ground and the student was up. He buckled his hands and legs as if to serve as a human shock absorber and hit the ground. So the, the writer writing the story, you can Google this to see if it's true. The writer writing the story says, it's amazing. 
But the young man, well, he didn't walk away. He was fine in just a few months. The instructor gave his life, knew exactly what was going on. It's just a story in a newspaper that caught my attention of sacrifice a few years ago. But it made me think about the situation I was in and you're in and your neighbors are in, your kids are in. They're hurtling to earth, maybe even unaware. And there's an impending crash coming. But there's a Savior who has strapped himself to their body. He's available, doing all he can. And if they'll accept his help, they'll release and let him lead. He'll turn and, just like on the cross, take the full brunt of all of that shame and guilt and fear and condemnation, regret. It's part of why we started this church. It's part of what keeps most of the staff and I and the volunteer leaders of this church going is we are in awe of a God who would hit the ground for us. We're in awe of him. It's not that it's always easy. It won't be easy for you to do some of what we're talking about. Some of you are going to have to stretch yourself. But when you're in awe of a God that will treat you like that, that would ride into the city knowing that he had the power to bring in a political movement but not do that so that he could instead change lives for eternity, it does something to your heart. And I want that reality to grip you this week, and I want it to grip the people you invite next week to be with us. I don't want you to act like this as any other week. I want you to go hard at this. So I asked Pastor Will to kind of cut the worship short just a little bit on the front end so that we could start practicing now for the back end. We're going to take some steps. We're going to pray. We're going to do our offering. And then we're going to focus some attention on just singing songs to God. And if you normally just stand there, hey, you're welcome to just keep standing there. Nobody's going to look around. We're not going to condemn you. I do want to push you. I want to push you. And when you come in next week, I want to push you. We're going to have guests here, so I'm going to talk a little differently. But I want to push you to praise God and see what an awe-filled heart expressed to him would do. So I'm wondering if right now, next step A, you'd like to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You'd like to commit your life to him. If so, check that box. We're going to pray in a minute. We're going to do some business with God. Our next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. We have a baptism uh, happening uh, just right around the corner. And can't think of a better time to get baptized than in the shadow of Easter, man. Uh, we go down with him as if we are being buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ to new life. It's a pretty powerful thing. Uh, next step C says, I'll pray this prayer each morning. Father, use me this week to help others see your invitation to come home. I go outside. God, use me somehow this week. Let my words, let my actions, let my invitation, let it be a reminder to people that you're inviting them to come home. So just use me. Just use me. Next step, D says, hey, I'll, I'll go all in and I'll invite two people. So if you've already invited two, that's fine. So we did a little count on the staff. There's uh, eight of us, full and part-time. Uh, we're at 34 personal, by name, invites. We don't want to ever encourage you to do anything we're not doing. So we're asking you to do two. Personal text, personal Facebook messenger, phone call, whatever. 
Next step eight. Hey, I'll go all in and I'll commit to giving to the Easter offering. And we'll tell you more about that. You'll have some literature in your hands. We'll go about four or five weeks on this and we'll try to make a major investment by the time the fall comes around for our student ministries. God will use it all. Why don't you set that aside? If you call this church home, we'll give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. So if next week you come in this building, here's what you can be confident of. Um, it'll be clean. Because a clean house, a clean church says we're expecting company. Uh, there'll be some treats here for people. Because when guests come, you want to give them something to help them remember their event. Uh, we'll be friendly, most of us anyway. The rest of us will try. Right? The kids are going to love it. Their middle schoolers will love it. They're going to love it. You know, you know how that, all that's possible? Let me be honest with you. Because you make it happen. <laughs> you pray, you serve, you give. There's a lot of other things you do, but three big categories. You pray, because it's spiritual work. It's not an organization. This is the church. You give part of what God blessed you with. So we pay the bills. So when folks come in next week, kids will leave with a pair of sunglasses on their eyes because their future's bright. Adults will leave with a small gift as well. I think you're going to like it. And so you'll get one too. It's going to be pretty, pretty cool. I'm going to tell you what it is. You'll see it next week. You know how we do that? Because you give. You pray. You serve. You make it happen. Next week, we're going to see God do great things. I promise you. Eternity is going to be touched next week. Lives are going to be changed next week. Brothers and sisters in Christ are going to get encouraged next week. The family of God is going to grow a little closer next week. That's the power of the resurrection, and I want you in on it. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. God, as we uh, give in worship now, as we take next steps to honor you, as we lift our voices in song, Lord, would you be lifted up? Would you draw people to yourself? Would you inhabit the praise of your people? And Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room right now, just a special blessing upon them, that they would sense the God who is there, that they are not alone. I pray, Father, that they would be overwhelmed with gratitude and awe of our great God. Inhabit the praise of your people. Take our gifts and our offering and go far and wide with them. For those that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I trust you with my life. And thank you for them. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.